this increasing rhetoric of anger toward those who are perceived as being intolerant or exclusive with truth. I think, I think there is an amping up of that in the university, of course, in the scientific community as well. There's, there's kind of a, a growing distaste for this absolute claims that are made by Christians and, in fact, other religions as well. But I, the, the key point right here is he's warning us so we are not surprised. In fact, in Peter, when he writes to the church, kind of spread out through Asia Minor, he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're enduring, as if something strange is happening to you. In other words, it's not strange to Peter. He understands it fully, and we ought to understand it. This is why I love the church. This is why I love this, this little outpost of heaven, this little colony of heaven that we have. I mean, I, I think in today's kind of North American context, the church's value uh, is, well, it's not highly valued. I mean, if we come, we come. If we make it, if we're able to, if there aren't other things that are problematic or if we don't like this, we move on. There's a, a degree of the migratory patterns of the evangelical are significant. But let me tell you, if opposition comes on, I think we would, we would thin down and we'd firm up. I mean, we would really see the necessity of being together as a family. If, you're, you know, if the storms are really raging, then the, the stink of the ark, you can handle it when the storms are really bad out there. And so Jesus is saying, you know, he's given us by his grace. I'm thankful that he's warned us. I'm thankful that he's been clear and honest with us. Jesus is very honest. He, he did not, he didn't at the beginning say, oh, it's going to be a nice ride, and then once we're on the boat, well, we've got some turbulent waters ahead. He warned us. It was kind of him. And then he gave us the church that we could fall back and, and be supported by one another. You know that if you begin facing the press of opposition and oppression and conflict, how important like-minded brothers and sisters will be to you who are waging war with you, who are suffering with you. So I love the Hebrew Christians in chapter 10. He says, uh, the writer says, they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. Now they are, they are laboring with those in prison. They're bearing the effects of those being associated with them. And they joyfully, can you imagine the support we would have to come back to a family that loves you, to support you in the midst of it? So the church is a great blessing to us. But let me ask you, so have you faced a degree of persecution or conflict over the faith? I, I don't want you to feel guilty right now. That's not my point in questioning. I'm just simply asking you to consider, has your verbal witness for Christ or has your lifestyles of holiness, have they brought you into conflict with anyone over anything? It's a question we need to ask ourselves. It's not a question. The last thing I want to do is guilt you into anything. I don't. I, I, I want the beauty of the gospel to lead you to obedience, not I need to go out and face some opposition. That's no good. As we're going to find out the point of opposition is for Christ's sake, not for, for my blunders, but it's for Christ's sake. But just ask yourself that. Have you faced, and why not? Has it been an issue of silence on your part? Have you moved in fear and kind of recoiled when the Spirit was urging you to speak up? Or have you just been in a context that you just haven't faced a lot of it, which I think applies to most of us? But answer that question before the end of the day, just for yourself. So Jesus warns us, and, and I'm warning you. 
So he warns us, I'm warning you, I'm warning myself. But then the second thing he does is he explains the nature of this opposition. He explains the conflict. Look what he says when he says, he's going to explain, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Look at the text in 17. He says, beware of men. They will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Now, I think there he's really talking about the religious persecution. Specifically, I think he's talking about the Jewish leadership uh, who are going to be coming down on the apostles. Because the word for courts is the word Sanhedrin. So in the same sentence, you see Sanhedrin, you see synagogues, Jewish leadership. And, of course, Jesus faced the opposition from Jewish leadership, and so did the apostles. If you read just the first six chapters of Acts, James and, John's are be- James and John are before the Sanhedrin. They're being whipped. The twelve were brought before him. They were whipped. So what Jesus said would happen did happen to them. But it's not just for them. As you notice, look in the next verse. He says that um, they're going to deliver you over uh, in uh, 18. You'll be dragged before governors and kings. And what's interesting about that is that's Gentile governments. So it's not just religious authorities that you will face opposition from, but it's also governmental authorities. Now, what's interesting about this is if you remember, these apostles were told in uh, verse 5 to not go to Gentile towns, to not go to Samaria. So you know this text has a clear implication for us. He wasn't just saying to these 12 on this journey, this is what you're going to face. But this is kind of more universal for all of us, that they're going to be dragged before Gentile kings and governors. And in fact, we know that they were, right? I mean, Paul was brought before Agrippa and Felix, Jesus before Herod, Peter before Herod. So so you know this was taking place in the first generation, but also to us. Governments, according to Romans 13, were ordained by God for our protection and the promotion of peace. But, Revelation 13, governments go dark. They go rogue. And all of a sudden, instead of promoting peace, they're persecuting and they're punishing. You see that now in Iran. You see it in North Korea. see it in Syria with Assad. And we see governments, in fact, had some stats. Christians were harassed by government officials in 95 countries. In 2010, that was the, how many countries? Or over the years of 2007 to 2010, the the countries with high governmental restrictions went from 10 to 18. So so I mean, I'm not just showing the ascendancy of things, but I'm just showing you the, boy, the broad nature of governmental press on Christianity and other religions as well. But particularly for Christianity. Christianity governmental, there's going to be opposition from religious authorities and government. But also, notice where else it says, this is this really hurts, 21, brother will deliver brother over to death. Father, his child and children will rise against parents and have him put to death. Can you believe it? I mean, is that really possible? Absolutely it is. And this familial conflict over the gospel. You know, when, the, uh, when Unitarianism moved through the Northeast, right, through Boston, Massachusetts, the northeast part of our country. Uh, It was Trinitarian, Unitarianism, Unitarian, got rid of Jesus as the unique son and savior, and just God, kind of a deistic model, God creates all things and winds it up and lets it go, and families were at odds. Families were broken up over those who held to a Trinitarian faith and Unitarian faith. We'd say, well, we would just love and hug, and no, 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 they were serious about the faith back then. It causes conflict. It causes conflict in my own family. When I moved from being a Roman Catholic to worshiping with Carol and coming to faith and, 
worshiping in a, in a non-Catholic church, oh, we had a lot of discussions, and they were heated. Nothing like to the degree of putting one another to death, but there was great conflict for months. It tore my heart. It's very, you know how it is. Last thing you want in your family is conflict, and conflict over the gospel. But he said, yes, that will be yours as well. That's going to be yours. So it's religious authorities, governmental authorities, and even interfamilial conflict will exist because of the gospel. And I know that many of you have already experienced that. But this conflict is going to lead to true suffering. Notice he uses terms like dragging and flogging, and you're going to be hated, and you're going to be maligned. This isn't theoretical opposition. This is real-life stuff that Jesus is warning all of his followers that this may be yours. It's not going to look the same in every single one of our lives, but he's warning us that this is the type of conflict we need to be warned about and prepared for. Now, why? Why is it such a big deal? Can't I just have my Jesus and worship him? Can't I just do that without all this oppression from government? Seems like a reasonable request. Well, Jesus explains why this kind of pressure and opposition is going to come to the church. And he says it in two different places. He says in 18, he says, you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. And in 22, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. In other words, it's our association with Jesus, both our faith, but also a lifestyle of following Christ that's going to lead us to receive this kind of conflict and opposition. He says it more clearly in 25, 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher. A servant is not above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant is master. In other words, if they've called Jesus the master of the house, Beelzebul, or that means Lord of the flies, or, or really the prince of demons, if they're going to call Jesus that, then those who love him and follow him, will you be treated differently? It's this identification with the faith. Now, you still say, but, but I just want to believe in him. Should it cause such conflict? Well, the problem is, I think, is the radical, the exclusive, and the unique claims of Jesus Christ. This is the problem. He is saying things like that um, he's the only Savior. He's the only Son of God. Matthew, throughout his whole gospel, has shown Jesus to be the unique king. He's bringing a kingdom that is immediately at odds with every other kingdom of this world. You may say, I'm not. You know, the, the, the non-Christian may say, well, I'm not at odds with Jesus. Well, in fact, with his kingdom coming, establishing his reign over all peoples, unless we move by faith, unless you repent of your sins, unless you submit to Christ, as, as um, was read in Psalm 2, then you are at odds. You are at odds. You know, the sin of the world is the same sin that was back in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve moved against God, they simply wanted their own. What was their sin? What was their big deal? They wanted moral autonomy when God created morality. They wanted to say, this is good and this is bad. They wanted moral autonomy to determine what is good and right versus what is bad and not. Now, God, in the first two chapters, was the one who got to say, this is good, this is good, this is good, this is very good. God has moral autonomy, not us. But when we rest from him that desire and we begin to walk out 
that idea of, no, I want to say this is, this is okay if I want to do this or if I want to do this. We get to exercise. That puts us at odds with God. And so when Jesus comes and he says, repent and believe, or you're outside the kingdom of God, well, that causes people to get their feathers ruffled. Jesus is saying, like, there's not a bunch of roads up the mountain. There's only one. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's these claims of exclusivity. You know, if you were to read early church history, you'd recognize that the Christian, as the Christian influence spread out across the Mediterranean basin, people didn't have a problem with Jesus. They said, yeah, bring him into the pantheon. Put him next to Zeus and Apollos and Athena. You worship him, we'll worship him. You can worship Zeus, we'll worship Zeus. It's okay, we'll all work together. Kind of one big pluralistic happy family. We'll just bring them in together. Well, what brought the ire of the people upon the Christians is they say, no, they're not gods. In fact, they're human constructions. They're nothing. Jesus is the only God. Jesus is the only one who has come to save. And that gets people angry. Hence the opposition, the conflict, and the oppression. And you know this today because we're in a highly, highly sensitive culture now that if you mention anything exclusive, boom, you're labeled anti, you're intolerant. You're labeled with all these bigoted, narrow-minded, thick-headed, old-fashioned, traditional, all these names just for holding on to Jesus being the unique Savior. This is a conflict that's going to come. It's always been that way. The disciples, these apostles, they all suffered the opposition from holding Jesus. I mean, Matthew, our, our gospel writer, he died in Ethiopia by tradition with a halberd. That's a six-foot pole with a spear on the end and a sharp axe on the other end. Paul, of course, was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. Mark was dragged through a town by a team of horses. They all died except for John, and he was put in a pot of boiling oil because of his association with Christ. But not just them, Athanasius, the great church father. He was banished, I don't know, a hundred times from his hometown over his views, Trinitarian views. Polycarp burned at the stake. You go up to the, the, the reformers. Luther had an edict against his life from the Roman Catholic Church for the bulk of his ministry. Calvin had to face persecution from governors and that both not just the townspeople but even the uh, even the governmental officials uh, Charles Spurgeon he didn't face physical persecution but they would constantly mock him in the London papers cartoons busting on his simplicity and his foolishness I mean it's always been that way the last century alone I know many of you know this but in the 20th century more men and women died for their association with Jesus than the 19th centuries prior to that combined. That is amazing. One report was 160,000 died in 2010. That's amazing. There is opposition today, no question about it. We don't, fa- we don't face it directly. When we're in Ecuador, religious opposition, we're in Ecuador, it's a heavy Catholic town, heavy Catholic country. We were teaching the pastors, there was a medical team that went out to a town about two hours away where one of the pastors was from, seeking to support its ministry, giving free medical care. The first day, it was mobbed. It was a zoo. So they thought, we'll go back the next day and catch the people that weren't there. They went back the next day. One person came. I mean, they weren't all healed. What happened? Well, the pastor was told. The Catholic priest went around and said, don't go to those evangelicals. Don't go there. I mean, really? 
You know, but not just government officials. Carol and I were, when we were overseas, uh, we uh, served a woman from Romania. Now, she was from Romania when Ceausescu was the leader, dictator, atheist, monster. Would punish Christians. We knew people that had to burn their furniture to heat their homes because they couldn't get wood because they were Christian. This is governmental pressure. She has a child, this lady, beautiful, faithful woman, had a child. The doctor said she's there in the hospital uh, having the child. What are you going to name the child? She gives it a Christian name. The doctor says, you can't give it a Christian name. She says, I'll give it a Christian name because this child's for the Lord. Took an instrument. She passed out, almost bled to death, and never had children again. That's governmental opposition. We know the lady. I mean, it's incredible. But, but family opposition within families. I ministered to a man when we were overseas who uh, came from a Muslim background, came to faith in Christ, wrote his family to confess, to acknowledge Christ as his king. They wrote him back and said, you're done. You're dead. We will have nothing to do with you. That's tough, being a son in a different country and your family just cutting off all ties. So this is the real deal. This is incredible. All for the sake of Christ and his gospel. It's profound, profound. Let it not be, let not the opposition and conflict be for our sake because of our insensitivity, our bullheadedness, our not fearing to rush where angels fear to tread. Just, just let it be for Christ's sake. So Jesus warns us. He says, opposition will come. He explains it for my name's sake, our association. This is why we need to grow in our love for the gospel. The more you love Christ, the more you understand his greatness and glory then these will seem like momentary afflictions, Paul says. So, so, so there's the warning. I gave you the explanation associated with the name of Christ. Let me give you where I think the scripture leads us to find encouragement. How will we face this? You notice he says here at the end of uh, 22, he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now listen to that. The one who endures to the end. He doesn't say, but the one who begins the Christian life will be saved. He speaks about the one who endures, not the one who begins. There are many who begin the journey, like the plants that come up planted around rocks. They shoot up pretty quick, but they don't last. Or the thin soil, or among the thorns, they don't last. The one who endures to the end will be saved. How do we endure to the end? Remember how in 11 to 15, he says that when you're, when, you, when they reject it in one town, go to the next. Go to the next. Shake the dust off, go to the next. He says also in 23, he says the same thing. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. That's a huge verse, by the way, just for those of you who like to study the Bible a little more intently. There are all kinds of views on that. Calvin thought that the Son of Man coming was at Pentecost. Others think resurrection. Some think the end of the age. Some think it's the destruction of uh, Jerusalem in AD 70. So they're all out there. You can read about them. What I would just draw your attention to is that we're going to be going from town to town until the Son of Man comes and finishes the work. 
So how do we endure till the end? How do we endure till the end? Not just the opposition we face, but the struggles through life. How will we endure when the persecution comes to you? Job threatened. Family turning on you. Government pressing down upon you. How will you endure? How are we going to handle ourselves? That's the question. Well, let me give you some answers that I'd ask you to consider. First would be out of 16. He tells us, be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. This is very interesting. I don't like to be compared to a serpent because the serpent has the idea, draws my mind to Satan. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying being wise as serpents. In other words, be prudent. Be intentional. Be shrewd. In other words, when you are being confronted with opposition and conflict, think on what to say and how to say it and and when to say it. In other words, there's a degree of deliberation and consideration. How best to confront this opposition that's facing you? You you, want to be mindful of the context that you're in. Sometimes it might be appropriate to remain silent. Sometimes it may be appropriate to stand up and speak to the truth of Christ. In other words, you're to be wise, you're to be shrewd, you're to be not calculating in a self-centered sense, but you're to be thinking. I think about Paul. When Paul was brought before the Sanhedrin in Acts, he was preaching, the Roman soldiers dragged him out, they brought him before the Sanhedrin, and he realized, hey, I've I've got Sadducees here who don't believe in the resurrection. I've got Pharisees here who do believe in the resurrection. And he's about to have his head pounded in. And he says, I'm here because of my hope in the resurrection. Well, boy, that's like throwing a grenade in the room because the Pharisees are saying, hey, he's our man. He's right. Well, the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, that's why they're sad, you see. I haven't pulled that one out in about eight years, so it should have gotten a lot more than that. So he throws a grenade in the room, and now they're fighting with each other. And guess what? He's gone. I mean, there's a a time to be shrewd with things. But shrewdness can be cunning and manipulative. That's why he includes innocence. Innocence is pure. It's unmixed. it's It's a pretty thing. It's truthful. And the two balance themselves out. To be innocent as a dove, you're not militaristic in your faith. You're not bombastic. You're not, as one pastor said, I'm not a bazooka for Jesus. You know, the bazooka is kind of this shoulder-mounted, really a missile launcher to, to blow up armored tanks and, and armored vehicles. You're, you're not to be. You're to be innocent as doves and shrewd. Uh, let me explain the shrewdness a little more. This is from William Hendrickson, <clears throat> commentator of the prior century. Very, very good commentary writer. He says, the keenness here, the shrewdness here recommended as a human quality involves insight into the nature of one's surroundings, personal and material, circumspection, sanctified common sense, wisdom to do the right thing at the right time and the right place in the right manner, a serious attempt to always discover what the best means to achieve the highest goal, an earnest and honest search for an answer to such questions as, how will this word or how will this action of mine look in the end? How will it affect my own future, that of my neighbor, that of God's glory? 
Is this the best way to handle the problem, or is there a better way? In other words, when you're confronted by opposition, you're thinking these thoughts. Is this the best time to bring up the gospel? Should I wait? Maybe I should serve in silence. Maybe I should sacrifice without explaining it. Maybe I should just... So so there's a shrewdness there. But there's also the innocence. And let let me just finish with... um, Not finish, but with J.C. Ryle, because I love the balance he brought here on these two. He says, There are a few of our Lord's instructions which are so difficult to use rightly as this. There is a line marked out for us between two extremes. The one requires great judgment to define. To avoid persecution by holding our tongues and keeping our religion entirely to ourselves is one extreme, and we're not to err in that direction. To court persecution and thrust our religion upon everyone we meet without regard to place, time, or circumstance is another extreme. In this direction, also, we are warned not to err any more than the other. We have need to cry to the only wise God for wisdom. So we ask him, Lord, what do I do? What do I say? How bold should I be? How soft should I be? So, and that's the counsel of the church. Ask your elder. Ask another believing brother or sister. How do I handle the situation? So we had the conference on homosexuality on Friday and Saturday. It's a very good conference. Um, it, it, it really was instructive, done well. It was done with compassion, clarity, I thought. But, but we took questions at the end. And many of the questions were legitimate questions. So I have <coughs> a relative, and they're practicing Homosexuals, they want to stay in my house. What should I do? How should I handle that? How bold should I be? How shrewd should I be? How innocent should I be? These are good questions in a culture where, where there's the collision of Christ and culture. How do I handle it? So this is what I'm speaking about. Be shrewd or be wise as serpents and be innocent as doves. Okay, the second thing for you to remember is that the kingdom advances through your suffering. This is really important to grasp. The kingdom advances through your suffering. Look at what he says. He says, you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness for them. Many religions, Islam being one, advances at the end of the sword. Christianity, for one, advances under the sword. We don't eat the wolves. We evangelize the wolves. So, so when, when the sheep are before the wolves suffering, that's a platform for us to bear witness to that which we hold in great value. This is our platform. When you face opposition over your faith, you're asking yourself, is this the time I'm to bear witness to the hope that is within me? And, and this is the chance. Why then? Why is it so important? Why does it have to advance through suffering? Well, think about it for a minute. You display the infinite worth of Christ when you're willing to obey him to the point of death rather than disobey him to the point of keeping my life. You're showing his worth and his value. That it's in this time of suffering where we're saying Jesus is worth it. He's worth it. Every bit of it. And folks, this has a profound effect on people. You see that in Scripture. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, suffering for the glory of God, pronouncing his willingness to forgive, what does the centurion say? The centurion, for those of you who forget this, he's the guy leading the execution team. So what does he say? Truly, you are the Son of God. That's a confessional statement. That's a confession. Truly. 
I believe, amen, absolutely, you are the Son of God. Watching him suffer. How about Paul and Stephen? Stephen's death, when they laid the cloaks at Paul's feet and he watched it, advanced it, it's brought up later in his testimony. It had an impact on him. When you read through Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's kind of a book chronicling all the suffering of the Christians. You see a number of repeated times that the executioner, a woman by the name of Cecilia, 215 AD, executed for her faith. Her executioner, seeing her, hearing her, converted and was executed. I mean, it's just, you see this litany of suffering because he is so worthy. It opens the blinded eye to the beauty of Christ. So we, we want to be wise as serpents, gentle as doves. We want to be recognizing that the kingdom of God advances through tribulations and suffering. And then thirdly, we've got to trust God. We've got to trust him. Look at what he says here. Look at the promises he gives us. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious about how you're going to speak or what you're going to say. He says, it'll be given to you in that hour. In other words, don't be anxious. Remember from Matthew chapter 6? In Matthew chapter 6, he says, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, or what you're going to wear. God's going to take care of the material provision. Here, he's going to take care of the spiritual provision. He's going to give you the words. He's going to give you the grace. Don't put yourself in situations of persecution and wonder how I'm going to handle that. You don't know that you'll ever face that. Just know that in that hour, now for a guy that likes to plan, that's a hard thing, I get. But in that hour, it's going to be given to you. Now, this, of course, doesn't justify not planning. Or If I come up here some Sunday morning and I'm waiting for the Spirit to give me the words I'm going to give to you, it doesn't justify a lack of planning at all. We, we, we study to show ourselves approved as workmen. But in the hour that you may come to fear, think, what would I say? How would I respond? Or I've got this coworker and he always asks me tough questions. How am I going to You know what? He'll give it to you. He says, the spirit of your father. Remember, so remember, he's your father. He's going to give you the words to say in that hour. In fact, I love Paul's testimony in 2 Timothy 4. He says this. He says, at my first defense, remember how Paul was getting dragged all the way ultimately to Rome? We believe that he ultimately stood before the biggest king of the Roman Empire, just like Jesus said, Caesar. Here's what he said. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. He says, all deserted me. Can you imagine? That guy had a life of tribulation. But boy, he loved Christ. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Could be Satan, could be Caesar. But Paul felt the strengthening hand. Matthew 18, the same thing, going to all the world, teaching and baptizing them. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. He says, I'll be with you to the end of the age. My presence will be with you. And it's in the context of going forth. It's not in the context of I just feel lonely right now. It's in the context of going forth. His presence is there. He'll give you the words. We see this time and time again. Let me just give you a few quotes of people who at the point of death came up with things to say that you can't imagine. Polycarp, he was a church father, 203 A.D. He's being burned at the stake. Here's what he says. He says, the fire you threaten burns for an hour and is quenched, but you do not know the fire of coming judgment. To the executioner, he's going to nail him to the post 
They're going to burn him. He says, leave me as I am, for he who grants me to endure the fire will enable me to also remain on the pyre, unmoved without the security you desire from nails. Who says that? Who says that? Nobody can think of that on the fly. It's the Spirit of God. Or John Huss. John Huss was burned at the stake in the 15th century. He says this, God is my witness that I have never taught that of which I have been accused of by false witnesses. In the truth of the gospel which I have written, taught, and preached, I will die today with gladness. Then he said this at the end. In a hundred years, God, in a hundred years, God will raise up a man who calls for reform who cannot be suppressed. Interestingly, a hundred years, almost to the day, Luther knocks 95 Theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church, proclaiming reform. Who says that stuff? Well, let me just give you a couple more. Queen Mary from the House of Stuart, England, 16th century. She did not like Protestants. She burned, killed many of them, close to 300. Hugh Latimer was one. He was the Bishop of Worcester. In the time of King Henry, he resigned because the reforms weren't taking place. She comes to power, arrests him. Here's what he says to his friend, Master Ridley, another, another pastor with him. He says, Master Ridley, play the man. For this day we shall light such a candle in England as I trust by God's grace shall never be put out. Who comes up with those things? You think, what would I do? God, your Father, through his Spirit, will give you the words to say. One more, then I'll stop. This is uh, Bradford, John Bradford. He, okay, uh, Bradford was killed on July 15, 1555. Latimer on March 21, 1556. He says, last words, O England, England, repent. He was John Leaf, a 19-year-old young believer, was being burned along with him. He says, be of good comfort, brother, for we shall have a happy supper with the Lord tonight. Who? That, that, isn't, that isn't flesh talking. The Father, your Father, Spirit speaking through you. So trust God that when you are in that context, he will give you the words. Folks, don't step away from the context because you don't have anything to say. Step into the context, trusting that he'll give you the words. And the last thing, the last one I would just give, and we'll talk more about this next week, is maintaining an eternal perspective. You know, the scripture that we read speaks about the Son of Man coming the Son of Man coming. Jesus is going to come. That has got to loom large. The return of Jesus Christ in glory and power has to loom large. The glory that we'll share with him has to loom large. Otherwise, it becomes a great, arduous, even more of an arduous journey to endure to the end. So let me um, leave that with you. Let me pray for us, and then I will uh, orient us to the table, and then we will um, we'll celebrate the table together. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy to us. You, uh, you have given us a journey, uh, but there is great honor. There is great honor and glory at the fulfillment of this, of this arduous journey. Lord, help uh, awaken us, not to fear, but to be aware, uh, leading us to be wise and to understand the nature of suffering leading to the kingdom advancing. Help us understand your faithfulness to uphold your people as you've given us a beautiful historical record of your faithfulness. 
Father, give us eyes to see the glory that awaits those who endure to the end. May we, may each man and woman move with endurance, fueled by their love for the gospel. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Before I call the servers, the elders forward to serve, um, l- let me just, if I can, just take one minute and, and kind of picking up the idea of the kingdom advancing through suffering. You don't see a more clear illustration of that than you see at this table. In the bread and the cup, when, you, when the elder tears the bread, you think his body is being broken for us, and you, and you take the bread and you dip it into the cup, The blood, the red of the cup reminds you of his blood. So you see his suffering advance the kingdom in your life. You came to believe. You you love the Savior. So his suffering led to the advance of the gospel in your life. I just want us to be thankful for that. So when you come to the table, may it be with great gratitude over that. But but then I'd also remind you that when you come to the table... um, Seeing his suffering, and you know, it was the joy set before him, so he had such a desire to bring glory to his Father because of the beauty of God that he endured this. When we come to the table, just for purposes of application, I want you to be thinking about, is Christ not worthy of you suffering to advance his name in the lives of those around you? So you may have a person or two in your mind that you really would love to be able to share the gospel with that you would really love for their eyes to open to the beauty of Christ. You want them to know Christ. And and what when you come to this table, this, this monthly reminder of his infinite value to you, then let this reminder of his value lead you to embrace the costs associated with the advance of the kingdom in his life. This table is reminding you, you serve an infinite and invaluable Lord. And so when you're thinking about his glory and his beauty, then let that mitigate the possibility of costs for you to advance the kingdom in the lives of others through your service and through your sacrifice and perhaps even through your suffering. So as, as we take a minute and just confess our sins silently and I ask the elders to come forward and the servants to come forward for the table and, and the rest of us, uh, we can put our heads down and consider these things before we come to the table.